2: Hello and welcome to a new episode of your favourite podcast, New Books in Islamic Studies, which operates online through the New Books Network. This is your host, Sher Ali Tarin. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic Studies and we chat with its author. Delighting in Khuram Hussain's consistently sparkling prose is reason enough to read his new book, Islam as Critique, Sayyid Ahmad Khan and the challenge of modernity but there is much more to this splendid book framed around the profoundly consequential, conceptual and political question of can Muslims serve not as friends or foes but as critics of Western modernity. Hussain addresses this question through a close and energetic reading of key selections from the scholarly corpus of the hugely influential yet often misunderstood modern South Asian Muslim scholar Sayyid Ahmad Khan. By putting Khan in contrapuntal conversation with a range of Western philosophers including Reinhold Niebuhr, Hannah Arendt and Alistair MacIntyre, Hussain explores ways in which Sayyid Ahmad Khan's thought On profound questions of moral obligation, knowledge, jihad and time disrupts a politics of either-or, whereby Muslim actors are invariably grinded in the sledgehammer of modern Western commensurability to emerge as either friends or as enemies. This provocative and thoughtful book will animate the interest of a range of scholars in Islamic studies, South Asian studies, politics, philosophy and post-colonial thought. It will also work as a great text to teach in courses on these and many other topics. Here now is my conversation with Professor Khuram Hussain. Hello Khuram, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, foram for coming on the New Books Network, on uh, New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, I, I, as we were just talking before we started recording, uh, such an incredible uh, book, which um, really uh, the thing that is quite remarkable is that it makes an intervention in multiple fields simultaneously. Scholars of Islam will have much to learn from it. scholars of South Asian history and South Asian Islam. But largely, you know, uh, questions of philosophy, post-colonial thought. There's a lot of intersecting threads and that we'll try to capture here. But before we get uh, specifically to the book, we have a tradition on the New Books Network Forum that our first question is uh, uh, biographical. Could you share a bit with our listeners um, the story of how you became a scholar of uh, Islam, philosophy and so on? And then, how did you get to write this particular book? Maybe share your journey a bit before we get to the book itself.
3: Right. I mean, I'm being from Pakistan. You know, my, my parents never thought I'd become this kind of doctor. You know, they they always wanted me to be like an engineer and or a, or a doctor, one of those things, right? A professional degree and stuff. Uh, and initially, I had come to college to get a degree, like a pre-engineering degree in Bowden, Bowden College, and then go to Caltech because there was, was a program, uh, you know, at Bowden where you went to Caltech to become an engineer. But then I got derailed on the way by my roommate, who was um, a philosophy and religion person. And then I started taking classes. And then, you know, the rest was history. Um, yeah, so my, I'm not, you know, trained as an Islamicist. Uh, I think that might come through quite clearly in the book as well. My training is mostly been in in philosophy, philosophy of religion, and then philosophy as such, Western philosophy for the most part. So this book basically came about when I tried to read uh, uh, Islamic writers like Sayyid Amit Khan as if I was reading Western philosophy. Do you see what I'm saying? So like in, instead of sort of thinking about them in provincial terms as Islamic scholars or Islamic theologians or Islamic or South Asianists, right? I tried to th- I tried to imagine these writers in much the same way that I would read a Hegel or a Kant or a Nietzsche or something, right? So the book is really about like do- taking that particular a way of thinking about these these thinkers seriously right like not try to provincialize them but read them the way i would read anything else right any any other sort of uh, piece of western philosophy or theology
2: terrific let's perhaps begin with the with the title which also serves as perhaps the major argument of the book right. islam islam as critique uh, tell us a bit uh, to our listeners uh, uh, what do you mean by that, and how does it connect to the central sort of point that you that you that you make in the book? That phrase, "Islam as critique."
3: Well, I think critique, to me, like you know, when we think about critical uh, critical theory or critique as such, is, is is sort of an intervention, right? Like when you when you take a particular point of view, a particular philosophy, as 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 being critical of of, of a particular understanding of the world, a particular ontology epistemology, what you're saying is that that there's a kind of internality to that thing, right? Like I think I'm, I'm referencing here Michael Walter's idea of like the internal critic versus external critic, right? So to think of Islam as critique is to internalize Islam within modernity, right? To say Islam is not something outside of modernity that modernity happens to, right? Islam is a particular critical take, you know, in the exposition of, of, of modernity as such, right? So it's, it's sort of, it's, 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 it's a way of signaling that I'm trying to internalize Islam as a way of looking at the world, right? As a critical way of looking at the world, which is absolutely essential to the exposition of
2: modernity as such. And um, the but, but other key point that you, of course, make, and I you know perhaps you could speak a bit more about this, is this critical point you make about looking at Muslims neither as uh, friend or foe, but, right. as, uh, but as critics. Uh, tell us a bit about what, what you mean there, and why is that so central, what, why is that so important, to what you try to do in this book?
3: I think a lot of my, like, when I started looking at Islam, modern Islam especially, or writings about modern Islam, uh, especially in the contemporary media and and also in the writings of people as well, like, I kept seeing this sort of, like, this either-or kind of phenomena, like, either you are a friend or you're you're an enemy, right? Either you are, you know, commensurable with Western modernity or you're completely rejecting it, right? Like, so this is sort of the... um, this binary way in which Muslims are either sort of accepted as friends, meaning like they are just like us, like Muslims are just like Muslims are people too, that kind of reading, right? The Islamophilia almost, or like Muslims are sort of you know ISIS and Al Qaeda and or, or or just rejecting modernity. So the point was that when I say critic, like I'm not using critic in a negative sense, right? I'm not saying critic in the sense uh, uh, of like you know like. A rejection but criticism as a way of of being in the world with other people right like if if i and for example like the way we are talking right now right like this is a this is a, this is a a particular example of critical debate right like you say something i say something back then you say something, I say something back, and then we both sort of grow from that experience of talking to each other right so i think my the primary sort of motivation for writing the book is that i find too little of that happening with, uh, uh, with Muslim thinkers in the global public mainstream, right? Like including academia, but mostly in, in sort of the way we talk about Muslims, right? We do hear about Muslims. Like uh, a very good example would be someone like Reza Aslan, right? Who's so anodyne, right? Like he's so completely anodyne. He's, he, he's, his, everything that he writes about is, is basically just anodyne liberal, uh, you know, masquerading as a Muslim, right? And I, I, to me, that seems like, almost as bad as like the sort of rejectionist fundamentalists right who basically say everything that's western everything that's modern is bad
2: hmm. and if you make the argument that a figure who is really useful of course i mean that's one of the key uh, interventions of the book that tries that who disrupts this kind of a commensurability paradigm right. is, Course, uh, this 19th century scholar, uh, Sayyid Ahmed Khan. Right. Uh, so tell us a bit to our listeners, um, may, maybe those who might be a bit unfamiliar with the South Asian context, maybe if you could situate a bit about your uh, take on Sayyid Ahmed Khan um, versus the earlier scholarship, but also why is he so useful for your purposes? Why is he so uh, uh, apt as an example of a scholar uh, who uh, disrupts this uh, commensurability uh, or this either or right. paradigm?
3: Well, I think. In many ways, like, I think one of the one of the points of this book and, and my other work is that in many ways, the contemporary moment is not so different, right, from its 19th century antecedents, right? In many ways, a lot of the debates we're having was, were already happening in the 19th century. So one of the things I talk about in the book is that uh, in many ways, uh, Sayyedem Khan's um, time period, especially after the, the mutiny in, in 1857 when the British colonial authorities were challenged by you know sporadic sort of uh, warfare, um, you know attempts to overthrow the, the imperial you know, the company rule at the time, um, say Khan's response to that particular situation was was precisely to not play the game of like either pledge loyalty to the crown or pledge loyalty to Islam right Like his point was, well how do we make this particular moment? in South Asia at the time, a moment in which we can sort of create something new, right? And to fully understand the novelty of the moment through an exposition of a new kind of Islam, like a new Ilm al kalam, as he, as he talks, a new, a new sort of theological take. Um, and I think we need that kind of sort of attitude in, in, in modern, uh, like th- that particular way of thinking about the world, I feel like is, is in short supply. Um, and it's not just in short supply, like philosophically, right? I think there, there's lots of great philosophical works being done, but, but normatively and you know, in, a, in a sense of like, like, how do we deal with this particular moment without falling into these this either or trap? So that's why I find him very useful is because he did not, you know, even though like that time period would have, uh, you know, been quite, you know, it would have been quite easy for him to fall into that trap um, as many of his co-religionists and,
2: uh, did at the time. But he didn't. And one of the key um, categories that you, that you uh, present in terms of uh, his work is this idea of harmonization or uh, tadbiya as you put it. Uh, tell us a bit about what that entails for Sayyid Amat Khan. W- what does that mean, the harmonization of Well, the, word, the, the, the actual concept of is actually
3: earlier than him. It was Shah Waliullah, Love, who's uh, another reformer from the 18th century. Uh, he came up with this idea of tatbiyah as a way of harmonizing all the different schools of Islamic thought and jurisprudence, and also harmonizing between the Sufi way and the ulama ulama way, and even you know even broader like you know harmonizing between Shias and Sunnis. So, so it was this very panoramic type of uh, concept that uh, Shah Waliullah came up with, you know, and he, as he tried to sort of you know unify all the different kinds of uh, quote unquote Islam in South Asia at the time into a single sort of coherent narrative, right? Um, and you know so Tatbiya as a, as a as a kind of like operationalized version of uh tawheed, which means sort of obviously you know unity of unity of god right so Tatbiya sort of as the as the human social cultural equivalent of the ontological concept of Tawheed. now say Khan means much the same by it right he's he's using the the term in a similar way to shawaliullah, but in a different context right he's trying to harmonize in his understanding, he's trying to harmonize all the different aspects of human life, right? Like, for example, like he's trying to say that we cannot think about human life as being divided up into 15, 16 different categories, right? Like we can't think of it as being separate, like secular and state versus religion versus dunya versus, you know, uh, so all of these sort of different disparate sort of fragmented aspects of Muslim identity and Muslim life at the time. He's saying we need to kind of bring it all together into a single coherent narrative, right? Like turn it into like a. So so think of it this way like it's not so much that it's trying, Tadbia refers to like making everything the same or everything uh, similar, but it's like the coherence of a language, for example, right? When we're talking right now, there's a kind of coherence, harmonized coherence to language, right? Like the sentences have a certain kind of grammar to them, they have a certain vocabulary to them, right? What Seleu Mahan was, was noticing in late nineteenth century India was that Islam as a language for understanding yourself and the world had become incoherent, right? And it had become incoherent because parts of it had just fragmented and become obsolete and obscure. So he was trying to create a new language, right? Like a new way of thinking about the world in in in, in and, and the word the he used the concept he used to define and and put together and sort of construct this new language was that yeah. Right. So the, the problem being that Muslims were no longer being able to talk coherently about the world in a way that kind of presented itself to them as a unified, you know, like a, like a some kind of coherent entity.
2: You've already touched on this, but before we get to the specific themes of Sayyid Amat Khan that you engage, I just wanted you to say a bit about this um, um, sort of way in which you've organized the book and the the kind of intervention that you launch. In that you put Sayyid Ahmed Khan in what you call a, a contrapuntal conversation with major uh, Western philosophers and theorists, uh, especially Hannah Arendt, uh, uh, Leiber, and Alistair McIntyre. Right. And, and you, you make a very interesting point that uh, you know you, you're trying to rethink the idea of contextualizing these Muslim thinkers in their particular right. time period. Tell us, tell tell our listeners a bit about that argument. Why uh, was this contrapuntal conversation? Important to you, and uh, how are you trying to sort of go beyond this idea of contextualizing Muslim thinkers in their own places and time periods, and so on?
3: Great, right. yeah. I mean, I, I listen. I, I'm not against contextualization. I mean, I think you know part of the cultural turn that happened in the 70s and 80s in, in academia in general was was I think very necessary to try and put things in context and not always use sort of Western models to describe everything. Right. I mean, that was the problem back in the day. Right. Like we had a sort of a overwhelming kind of uh, gaze of the West sort of describing the world in Western terms. So, so contextualizing, you know, like postcolonial studies and like cultural studies, right. To, 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 to un- try and understand human phenomena in context is a, is generally a good thing, right? Like that's a, it's a corrective to failed sort of universalisms of the past. But at the same time, I feel that there is a kind of loss attendant to over contextualization, right? Because when you over contextualize somebody, like Sayed Khan, you basically say that he has nothing to say that is relevant to the human condition as such, right? Like I, as a humanist, and I would describe myself as a humanist, I am really interested in the human dimensions of all people, right? Like of all events, of all phenomena, no matter where they happen, right? So, but, but what, what I mean by decontextualizing Sayed Khan is not not to say like, hey, he's not a South Asian nineteenth-century South Asian Muslim reformer, right? Like that's that's context, right? but what is his relevance to the human condition as such, right? Like what can we as human beings learn from him, right? And that I think about as reading, like, you know, reading him out of context, Uh, not so much out of context in the sense of, of like, just completely erasing his particularity, but to engage with him as we engage with a lot of Western philosophers, right? Like we engage with them without this constant interrogation of their biographies, right? I mean, you, you can talk to, and and you know, like you can talk to people who've been steeped in Western philosophy and they wouldn't know a damn thing about Kant or or Hegel and their biography or where they were from or what they were doing or like what were their particular religious affiliations and all that stuff, right? And, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing to know that stuff, but what I'm saying is that it's, sometimes it's not sometimes you can engage with these people purely on the terms of their ideas, right? I know that's not very fashionable, especially in, you know in our present moment, but sometimes you can just look at the ideas and just you know, and stay with that. That's where one of the reasons I began with uh, the book with um, Ahmadinejad, right? Like saying, "Listen, I mean, I understand. You know, the, there's a lot of sort of problematic aspects to Ahmadinejad, but sometimes it is important to just read, you know, what is written. Do you see what I'm trying to get at? Like just to read what is written and engage with that at a human level. So that's that was the the, the approach. And then in terms of the contrapuntal that. that I think pretty much what I've already said, right? Like I want to read Sayyidina Khan with the other people that I read. Much like I read Hannah Arendt with Nietzsche or Hegel, right? I want to read him into the same conversation, right? And I want to be able to sort of just make that conversation available to other people, right? Like other people can then look at this particular book and say, hey, listen, it's not that complicated or weird to read Sayyidina Khan next to Reinhold Niebuhr." Right. Like it's just as it's not in weird to read Rhinol lieber next to Kant, right? They're they're just as far removed in many ways, you know, from each other geographically and historically and, you know, temperament wise, right? Like so there's nothing there's nothing like peculiarly peculiar about Sayyidina Khan or Muslim thinkers, right? They're all we're all living in a modern world that is hyper connected. Right. Maybe back a thousand years ago there were there might have been like sort of, you know, zones of exclusive particularity. Right. We don't have those zones anymore. We certainly haven't had them for the last 200 years. Right. Uh, so I think we, we need to begin to sort of sort of begin to pull these people out of their context, you know, um, in, in, a, in a way to humanize the discourse around.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: So now let's let's get to some of the specific ways in which you conduct this contrapuntal conversation. Um, uh, one of the key uh, ideas in Sayyid Ahmed Khan that you explore at uh, in depth is this idea of uh, takleef, or right. you know, which has a certain notion of moral obligation, but then sort of the notion of uh, burden and so on in the South Asian context. Right. So tell us a bit about what Sayyid Ahmed Khan does with this notion of taklif, and then how you put that into conversation. Uh, with Niebuhr, I know this was a massive chapter with a lot going know, on. But maybe,
3: yeah. My maybe. My, 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 my publisher was, was like, "Can you please break it into two? I was like, "Can't do it."
2: I'm glad you didn't. I'm glad you didn't. It was it was fantastic. But maybe could you could it give us a sense of the gist of this um, this uh, uh, chapter and what this you do course. with the cleaf yeah. and, and, and Niebuhr. Yeah.
3: Well, the cleaf, you know, the Klieff is historically right. It's a, it's a thick it's a thick concept. It's a, it's a very it's a legalistic concept, right? It's a, it says prefers to the moral obligation that human beings are put under by God, right? Like the human beings have to, it's a, so it's, it's a, it's a kind of like, a, um, it's the, it's the mechanism, it's the conceptual theological mechanism by which humans are held accountable basically, right? So they're under, they're under obligation to do right. You know, so what, what Khan does is very interesting because as you know, Shirley, like the cliff, in Urdu has a very different meaning, usually, right? Like, in Urdu, taklif also just literally means pain, right? So, Sayyid Amit Khan does this very interesting thing because Sayyid Amit Khan is the first, first major writer who does theology in South Asia in Urdu, not in Arabic, right? He's able to use this term and its much wider connotative domain in Urdu to make a real interesting intervention, right? A theological intervention. So, he's able to make taklif not just... A kind of moral obligation, but but connect it with the idea of human limitation and the pain, the painfulness or the or the burden of being a human being, of being situated, being limited, right? Um, in in one's capacity to be able to see and to hear and to experience, right? So he 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 takes this concept, which is a fairly dry, you know, theological legalistic concept. And he turns it and uses kind of an ontological uh, claim about the human condition, right? That human beings are the kind of creatures that are limited, unlike God, right? God has like, a limitless omniscience, difference. Human beings are situated, biologically situated, physically situated, historically situated, and they're, by definition, finite. And this finitude, right? this finitude is what the khalif is for, for Sayyidina Amit Khan, right? That, that, that finitude is, in fact, not just the fact of the finitude, but Sayyidina Khan locates the human capacity to reason and the human capacity for freedom precisely in this finitude. I think this is sort of the big intervention, right? Which is that Saitama Khan does not locate or does not understand freedom and reason, right? Abstractly. He understands it very, very, uh, uh, particularly as an aspect of human finitude of the cliff, right? So that Freedom is not something, uh, I think I've used the idea that, that freedom is a particular kind of uh, epiphenomenal to the condition of being put under obligation by God, right? So it's sort of like a, it's counterintuitive, right? Like it's usually you would say, hey, if you're under pain and obligation, you have, uh, your freedom is limited, right? But Sayyidem Khan imagines human freedom, human reason as precisely the human response, Right. To being put under obligation, to being finite, right? So he takes this particular, you know, counterintuitive intuitive sort of approach to, um, to to try and locate the capacity to reason and the capacity for freedom in being a finite being. Now, in that sense, his particular understanding of the clefax is very similar. When I was reading it, to say that um, to Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, understanding of sin in in Christian theology, right? In Christian theology. Or Reinhold Niebuhr's version of it, he also understands the human capacity for reason as being located in human finitude. And he understands sin, not in an Augustinian sort of sexual physical way, but rather the sin of one's, of, of, of the, the sin as like the, 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 the finite condition of being human, while at the same time being, being able to imagine infinitely, Right. So this combination of things, the fi- finitude of the human condition and the human capacity for imagination, right, in a kind of tension with each other that gives rise to the human capacity for reason. So, it's, so I, I thought when I was reading, I mean, I, I, I'm actually, I've, I've read Niebuhr. Uh, I've been exposed to Niebuhr for a long time, much longer than Sayyid Khan. So once I started reading Sayyid Khan, I was reading into Sayyid Khan, right, some of what I had already read in Niebuhr. Right. So this is also what I mean by reading into, right? So I was I, I was reading into Sayyid Khan a particular kind of reading of the that was very informed by my understanding of Reinhold Niebuhr's idea of sin. Uh,
2: and before we before we get to the next chapter, there is another very interesting thing you do um, in this chapter, which is Sayyid Ahmad Khan's reading of um, uh, temporality and especially uh, uh, of uh, jahiliya. Uh, sort of poetry, but also the Jahiliya time period and what the kind of intervention that in Islam marked. This notion of time right. that we saw. Uh, that you also then juxtapose with neighbor's idea of uh, uh, morality being the flow of time and so right. on. Uh, tell right. Tell us a bit about that, also, because it's such an important part of this chapter. I didn't want to miss it.
3: Yeah. So uh, Sayyid khan wrote like an entire history of the Arab people, you know, and it's it's completely Orientalist. <laughs> so it's it's not very good. Let me just say, like, you know, he's not a historian. But he, he wrote a biography of the Prophet, and the first two chapters are all about talking about, you know, the, the period before the Prophet, the jahiliyyah, as, as, as it's called. And one of the aspects of jahiliyyah that that Amit Khan is very sort of interested in, in sort of uh, engaging with is this idea of dahar, or, or of time, right? But the jahiliya understanding of time, the pre-Islamic understanding of time in the Arabian in the Peninsula, is not just time as a kind of abstract uh, stage on which things are happening, but time is sort of a destroyer of things, right? Time is fate, like in the old Greek sense, right? Like time consumes everything, right? It has no beginning, no end. It's just this constant consuming, overwhelming force, right? (laughs) That just like devastates everything, right? Um, And what the the kind of attitude that then that creates in in the pre-Islamic Arab is, according to Saddam Khan, a certain kind of nihilistic assertiveness, right? Like nihilism, because time will take everything at some point, right? Like it's it. So just enjoy. So a kind of a nihilistic Epicurean sort of hedonism, right? So just enjoy the wine, enjoy women, enjoy violence, and all that stuff. Um, and a kind of assertiveness born of the idea that well, if there's no if there's no other standard by which you can be judged other than just being consumed by time, then you, you should just continuously sort of assert yourself, you know, over others, right? So it's, there's a kind of a nihilist, almost Nietzschean kind of um, aspect to it. And what what um, according to Khan, what Islam does is 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 take that particular combination of of an understanding of time without beginning or end, right? Where the only thing that's really relevant is life and the living of life, right? And reconfigure it almost entirely, almost invert it almost entirely, right? By making time um, constrained in the Islamic context of beginnings and ends, right? Like the beginning of time and the end to time. And by by making time into this kind of, um, a how should we say it? By making time, um, instead of like an abstract, uh, instead of like a mere consumer of things, but rather a kind of stage on which the human drama can play out, uh, it fundamentally sort of reconfigures. So, so Khan's idea was that the, the reason why the Quran was revealed to the Arabs is because the pre Islamic Arabs are the most unlike <laughs> what, what they're the they're sort of the worst or the most extreme example of like this notion of uh, uh, assertive hedonism, right? So that the, the particular orient, reorientation of the Arabs is the prime example of how Islam is designed to transform the human condition as such, right? So this is what, the, and this is where I, I sort of, I, again, I, I combined it with the Niebuhr's idea of the morality of the flow of time, is that time only flows in the sense that, you know, if events are not just random things that are happening in time, but rather events flow in a particular direction because we have a moral code as human beings, right? Because of morality, time has a kind of meaning other than just the happening of it, other than just consuming of
2: the human condition. The next uh, key theme you explain is that of uh, uh, jihad. And again, there you bring in um, Hannah Arendt and her notions of uh, uh, political action and so on. Uh, What does Sayyid Amat Khan, how does Sayyid Khan understand this category of jihad? How does it uh, depart from perhaps earlier Muslim understandings? And uh, how is that politically productive? and? uh, In what ways do you put that into conversation with Arend?
3: Well, I think one of the things that I've noticed, like recently in, in, in well in academia, but also like in general discussions, is that you get this idea that oh, you know, jihad is uh, jihad is not really holy war. Jihad is like about internal transformation, and you know that's true, but it's also not true. Like jihad has always had many different meanings, as you know, in you know within the Muslim. Uh, context, right? It's always had the meaning. Sufis have a different understanding of jihad. You know, state actors have a different understanding of jihad. So jihad is is a panoramic concept, has lots and lots of different meanings, always been there, always been that way, right? Um, Sayyid Ahmed Khan's particular reading of jihad really has to do with his, uh, his, uh, so let let me put it this way. So of the things that, of the things that British introduced in India, right, the legal infrastructure, the, you know, state infrastructure, science, uh, philosophy, whatever else, right? The one thing that Sayyid Amit Khan thought was the most important, right, was um, freedom of the press, right? Or the idea that we should have spaces in which we can openly discuss all matters of public interest, right? So what Sayyid Khan tried to do was to re we interpret or like reorient the idea of struggle or jihad, right? A Muslim struggle, specifically Muslim struggle. And we configure it and attach it to this idea of ilm, right? Of knowledge, right? That somehow there's a kind of jihad that is oriented towards the production of knowledge and the sharing of knowledge and of debate, right? Like debating um, the public good. Right? And so, he, he, so it's not so much, I'm saying like that his concept of jihad is somehow better or superior to other concepts of jihad. I mean, I think that's just, that, that that's nonsense. I mean, like there's all different kinds of, just, it's, like I said, it's a panoramic concept. Lots of people have talked about it in lots of different ways and, and that's fine. But he, but Sayyid Khan tried to like, um, um, tried to sort of say, well, okay, well, jihad is extremely important, but let's think about jihad in terms of like this, um, uh, you know, in terms of the, the freedom to debate, right, to debate things. And he th- made that not just as a kind of an ethical thing. He, for him, for sayyid Amit Khan, the idea of debating or the idea of, 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 of conversation and of free expression, right, is also an epistemological concept that you can't get to the truth of things, according to him, without these kinds of conversations, right? This is where he gets very close to somebody like uh, Mill, right, like John Stuart Mill, is that there is a way in which, like, it's not just a good thing, like, politically speaking, to be able to express yourself, right? It's not just a good thing ethically. It's actually attendant to epistemological rigor to, in order to actually sort of, you know, so it's it almost like a sort of, like, a vaguely similar to, like, the scientific method almost, right? Um, as you know, like, Sayyid Ahmed Khan was, was knighted by, by the British Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan. Uh, and part, part of the reason he was knighted was because he was against... Uh, Political agitation against the British, right? He always said that, you know, that that's a, not a very good use of, uh, you know, the time of Muslims uh, in, in the late 19th century. He was much more interested in, in using his time, for example, in uh, forming uh, publications, journals, uh, gazettes, and obviously famously founded uh, the MAO College, which later became the University. So those kinds of activities for him were much more attendant to his particular conception of. Of what, what jihad should be like in the context of late 19th century India. Right. And and, and when reading like, you know, some, some of the stuff that he writes about, and I, I think I quote him quite extensively in this chapter, I was very struck by how, in many ways, how Aristotelian this particular concept is, right? Like in some ways, and this makes sense. I mean the, the Islamic tradition is, is very heavily influenced by by classical thinkers. But especially Aristotelian in this in the way that Hannah Arendt reread Aristotle, right? which is the idea of politics as a kind of uh, constant conversation about the public good, about the common good, about the good life, right? Is a conversation that is about itself in that sense, right? Like it's not a conversation about something other than itself. The conversation itself is the playing out of politics, right? And, and that to me like was very, very, I mean, it was very sort of uh, almost uh, jarring in a good way when I, when I first started reading Sayyidina Khan and uh, reading into him the stuff that I was learning from Hannah Wendt.
2: Yeah, that's a good uh, segue into the next uh, uh, chapter in discussion, uh, um, Aristotle, because what you show in the last uh, substantive chapter of the book is these very interesting uh, intimacies or uh, 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 points of convergence between Alistair MacIntyre and Mathan on questions of wisdom and knowledge and tradition and so on. Right. Um, and, of course, Aristotle is very key to that argument. Uh, so tell us a bit about that argument. Uh, uh, you spend a lot of time with McIntyre and then connect him to the question of knowledge and wisdom in Sayyid Mathan. Um, tell us a bit about the argument of that chapter and uh, w- why this convergence? What 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 is your theory of this convergence? Well,
3: I, think that, I think it really is that there's a way in which I think what McIntyre is saying is that there's an Aristotelian sort of understanding, right, of... Uh, uh, you know, means of ends, right? So Aristotle really is a philosopher of ends, right? Ends, not in the sense of like the end of things, but like the ends, meaning what is the essence of things, right? Like what is the thing's end? Like what is the what is the, 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 what is the the meaning of that thing? What is the meaning of life, right? Life as a story has a meaning, right? Um, and so I think that kind of arc, the, this understanding of virtues, of habituses, of character, um, these are all things that are, according to McIntyre, have been sort of devastated by the, you know the rise of sort of the liberal and conceptions of time, liberal conceptions of the human person, uh, you know hyper individualism, all that stuff, right? So what McIntyre is, is trying to say is that listen, you know we have to sort of we have to account for a particular conception of the human of human life and of the meaning of human life, you know that is rooted in an already pre-existing context, right? Which is the tradition, right? So we we cannot. So for McIntyre, there's no way to evaluate the meaning of a particular life without the context within which that life uh, happens, so to say. The life world, which, which, which grounds sort of the story of that person, right? I think this particular way of thinking about a human person is very, very similar to the way, say, Sylvain Khan sort of imagines it, right? That there is a way in which, like, the story of the human person in any particular context... Uh, needs to be told vis-a-vis the tradition within which that person is embedded. Not, again, neither are McIntyre, not Khan are saying is that somehow that is the only way you can read a human story, right? That's, that's not the point of the tradition. But the tradition is what makes these stories coherent, right? Um, whereas sort of the liberal conceptions of, of, of the individual uh, as radically sort of, you know, radically sort of um, independent, so to say, vis-a-vis, you know, that person's dignity or that person's uh, uh, narrative coherence, um, is, is almost incoherent to McIntyre, right? And to a certain extent, I think to, to, to Khan as well. Um, the, the way this chapter, you know, the, the idea of knowledge and wisdom, right, is that wisdom is the mechanism, right, by which we can actually accumulate knowledge in a meaningful way, right? Not as a kind of a just knowledge for knowledge's sake, which is what uh, the liberal model seems to, be, seems to be doing for, according to McIntyre, right? Like, uh, for example, like Magna talks about, like, all the different spheres of human activity within sort of the modern liberal model, they each seem to operate on this kind of model of, like, just more accumulation, right? Like, so scientific knowledge, you've heard, I'm sure, you know, people say, well, science for science's sake, you know, we just knowledge for knowledge's sake, right? You just keep accumulating knowledge because you just want more knowledge, right? Same thing applies to the economic models, right? Like, what, is, what do we say? You know, just make more money, right? Like, money, the accumulation of money is an end in itself, right? Uh, you can say the same thing about, you know, consumptive models. So the, so what magnet is identifying in the modern condition, the problem is mass, mass knowledge accumulation without a kind of coherent wisdom to organize that knowledge, right? Um, and that coherent wisdom is a repository of tradition, right? Without tradition, you can't really have that. You can't really have a coherent sort of model for doing this, right? Um and this is where I think Sayed Khan's concept of Islam comes in, right? For, for Sayed Khan, Islam is a name, right, for the for the organization of human knowledge in all different spheres, right, in such a way as to enhance human flourishing. Right? This is what I meant when I I think I mentioned in the book, like that what, what Sayed Khan has in mind with Islam is a kind of a grand humanism, right? It's it's dehumanism to ground all the humanisms. Right, so for, for for Khan, the loss of Islam is then not just some kind of a provincial loss, according to him. Right? It's, not, it's not. just a loss of a particular kind of quote-unquote religion. It's a loss of a certain kind of opportunity, right? For for human flourishing. Some ways. So that's, that that was the thing that the idea of knowledge and wisdom is something that it seems uh, wisdom is not something that uh, we uh, you know even in modern philosophy, like it's not, it's, it's not a concept that gets much play anymore. Um, but Ma- I think I thought like it would be good use of, of that particular concept, especially is the way McIntyre uses the idea of tradition to try and like
2: sort of you know retrieve a little bit of this idea of wisdom. Before we talk about the epilogue, uh, you know, since the book is on critique, um, let let me take a step back from the book itself and ask you a possible critique that someone might you know uh, might have, and I would very sure. curious how, how you would respond to that or how you would think with that perhaps is that, um, you know, what if someone might say that um, as much as um, it's very productive what you're doing with Sayyid Ahmad Khan and that you're not reading him in these very typical ways of him being a modernist or, you know, someone who's trying to establish the compatibility of Islam and modernity, but you're trying to show that he has a double critique. On the one hand, he's critical of uh, his core religionists but also uh, of uh, the project of uh, colonialism and so on. So you're complicating him, which is really productive. But what about uh, sort of his co-religionists, so to say, the sort of other kinds of actors on the scene, the traditionalists, and so on? Um, is is there a way in which perhaps Sayyid Ahmed Khan's depiction of them is being uh, sort of um, taken at uh, face value? Of so, I mean, in some words, uh, where is the ambiguity of those actors? Uh, uh, is Sayyid Ahmed Khan an appealing, attractive actor to you uh, because he seems to be? Um, uh particularly uh, uh, you know apt for this kind of a uh, critique of either or politics that you're launching but is is there a way in which the ambiguity and perhaps some productive aspects of those other kinds of actors that sayadamat khan was engaged in debates with right. etc might be sort of um, left out uh, i would just, i would just be curious how you would respond to that because that would be i would imagine that to be sort of uh, Oh, I think, yeah, yeah. I think
3: it's a completely fair critique and, and, and the the thing I would say is that yeah, no, obviously I think uh Saddam Khan is, is in, in many, I mean, a lot of his writing is, is quite clearly, you know, very. Um, let me let me just say let me put it this way. Sayed Khan is 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 clearly not above sort of you know sort of caricatures of like the people that he's debating just as he's caricatured. Right. So it's not so much that St. Al Khan is somehow, you know, more uh, reliable uh, as, a, as a narrator of his particular uh, situation. But I, what I didn't want to do in this particular book was, again, like I said earlier, was, was situate, situate him too well in his context, right? Like, mm-hmm. I didn't want to put him in, in, a, in a situation where I'm spending, like, a lot of time, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, exploring or debating his location, um, discursive mm-hmm. location, I wanted to pull him out of that location, right? So I do mention here and there a few people, you know, uh, in, his, in his particular time period, like Hali, I think I mentioned, I mentioned Iqbal a little bit later, right? But, I, but I, was, I, was, I, I, I didn't really want to explore that particular context too much, right? Because the point of the, the, point of the exercise is to kind of pull him out of there, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. pull him out and into like a conversation with, with completely, random, completely different people right Mm -hmm. but in terms of like his particular as you know i mean you 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 look at the the same time period i think in your work especially um you know if i like i could i could i you know i could do like a um like a book i mean i'm not going to but i could do a book um you know finding uh like a a deobandi person or something right at in that time period and and do the same kind of thing, right? Because each of these people uh, are, have complicated takes on modernity, right? The idea that somehow like, you know, there is even, even the ones who even what I'm getting at is that even self-professed Muslim, you know, people who are much more saying, even self, even people who are self-professedly anti-Western, right? Mm-hmm. Can be read productively with Westerners, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, so I, I, so, so the, the the fact that I was doing this with Tatum Khan um, is is in some ways quite incidental. Like I didn't I didn't go out, you know, I I didn't choose him, uh, uh, you know, for for the fact of his being sort of, um, um you know, I mean, it's clearly easier for my purposes, <laughs> right, and, than doing somebody else like some of the people that you look at. But if I was better trained in Islamic studies, if I knew more about that particular time period, I think you can do this kind of a critical reading uh, of any of these folks with other people in in, in Europe and elsewhere.
2: Right, right, right. No, I I think that's that's actually really useful. And uh, uh, it really is in some ways a great example of a decolonial exercise in which you're showing that, you know, someone... uh, uh, a South Asian Muslim thinker can be read alongside these other thinkers who, are usually, who usually populate the syllabi of uh, right. courses on, uh, uh, you know, philosophical thought or theories and methods and so on. So, right, exactly. So they, I mean, someone like Sayyid Ahmed Khan is deeply theoretical in his own right, is what oh, shows, which is which is which is incredible, which is really important. Um, just as a quick quick follow up, just for the benefit of people who will write on Sayyid Ahmed Khan moving uh, onwards and so on. Clearly, you know, after your book, it's very difficult to categorize him or label him as a modernist which is the which is the sort of default in in, right. in, in western writing what would you recommend uh, what kind of a category would you recommend if any if any should one just call him a, a political theorist or a muslim scholar I'm, or, I'm, or I'm, yeah I
3: really i mean I, I really don't have a problem with modernist you know i mean i, I just want to redefine what modernism means you know like sure. i feel like modernism has gotten a really bad rap Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know as some kind of like quaint and old-fashioned i mean mm-hmm. i would consider myself a modernist i think i mentioned in the book like right. you know i i I go with the idea of modernism is just you know modernism is the is is people trying to sort of make a home of for themselves in the modern you right. know in, in 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 modernity which is like all of these you know various processes so right. modernism is modernist is fine i think just I, my concern is when mod, modernist versus something right like it's mm. like when modernist becomes a, uh, you know, because usually what you get in, in, in a lot of anthologies is modernist and fundamentalist or something right. like <laughs> right, right. or liberals versus like uh, yeah. radicals. So, I mean, that, it's like the binary that's the problem, not right. the term itself. So, I mean, I have no problem with modernist as long as it's not in some kind of a, you know, like a binary with, 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 with some, you know, with whatever else is you. We usually find right like these I mean, as, as your work shows like i mean it's, some, some of these terms are just really not very useful right. when they're in a particular kind of discursive architecture but you know once you remove them from that architecture you know then i i'm you know personally i'm fine with that
2: right and especially as you show with someone like said khan who's deeply steeped in a uh, what one might call a traditionalist uh uh, training and worldview oh, and uh, networks of scholars. He's, he, that is his world, but that... I mean, manage. if think
3: he's a conservative, right? He's a conservative. That's it's a much better term for him if you don't put conservative in that binary again, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's hes the—he's conservative in the same... He's a Republican conservative in the small R, small C, right? That's what he is. Like, if you really want to read him as a thinker, uh, you know, he's interested in conservation, right? But he's also interested in the Republican ideals, so to say, of like, of right. building community and stuff. So that's... But like, but do you see how, like, you know, if I yeah. say that, considering the, you know, the contemporary scholarship on, on Siddharth Khan, there would be like people would, head would explode, right? Like, we're right. like, how, what are you talking about? He's not a good right. you know, right. yeah. right. So I'm saying like, just like with any other Western philosopher, we have these particular, much more complicated terms to describe them, right? Right. Which, you know, terms that attend to what their thinking is actually like, not the particular disposition that some Western person has towards them, right? Like, right. Like de- defining Sayedam Khan vis a vis dispositionally rather than right theoretically or philosophically, I think that's the problem, right? Um, and if you can, if I and mean, so so the terms themselves, I, I feel like are not the problem so much. Right. It's the particular discursive architecture within which these terms are embedded.
2: One other question, and then we'll really get to the epilogue that I think for many readers will come up, and that's not part of your 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 project, but I think it's a, a, perhaps you can just uh, uh, speculate a bit on this is sort of the afterlife of Sayyid ahmed Khan in the post-colonial moment in, right. in, in, in India and in Pakistan in very different sort of ways. Uh, what's your sense of the sort of uh, legacy and uh, how, I mean, this question often comes up in the context of Iqbal, but I think Sayyid ahmed Khan right. is equally, if not more interesting in, in this respect. Oh, absolutely. Uh, what, what's your sense of his afterlives and how? what are some productive possibilities in both of these contexts of India and Pakistan today in terms of reading
3: much like Iqbal, right, he, he's one of the few sort of figures that I've sort of almost equally re- revered in some ways, you know, in both India and Pakistan for very different reasons. Like in Pakistan, I remember growing up, always hearing that Sayyidam Khan was the founder of the idea of Pakistan, right? Like he's like the first one. And then we heard all about his, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure you did too, right? Um, and in India, he's obviously known more for his educational Interventions in, you know, from, you know, Mohammedan Anglo-Oriental College, which later became Aligarh University. So there is that particular track. Uh, so he's been sort of appropriated by the nationalist sort of historiographies of, 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 of you know, both countries in ways that are just very, uh, I mean, I would say depressing, you know, because what, what that did is like it converted somebody who was like a... It would be as if the only way we read Hegel, Right was as a theorist of uh, the state of Germany. You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, instead of, like, thinking about, like, the phenomenology of spirit or, like, you know, philosophy of history, we're like, yeah, the German state, that's what Hegel was really writing about, right? So I feel like that's what what has happened with the nationalist, uh, you know, appropriations of Sayyidina Khan is, like, a kind of hollowing out of his uh, intellectual, uh, uh, you know, uh, over, which is absolutely astounding. Like you, you know, the, I have the complete works, right? It's sixteen volumes, like like eight thousand pages. Do you see what I mean? Like this, this is an incredibly productive scholar, incredibly productive thinker, who's rigorous and sophisticated and complex and just brilliant in so many ways. And yet, all we hear about it, right, in in in, in Pakistan and India, are these like minuscule kind of refrains, these caricatured refrains you know, about, about this person, you know, from both well-wishers and ill-wishers, right. Um, and that's, you know, it's, 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 it's really unfortunate, you know, like, I think like if people were to engage with his work, um, you know, in a more sort of sophisticated way, in a more complex way, I mean, this book, like I said, I mean, I, this, is this book is barely scratching the surface, right. Yeah. Of, of like just the surface of the surface of, 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 of his work. Right. Um and I, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I wish, like, you know, if, 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 nothing else, like, if somebody reads this book and they're more interested in reading him again, uh, and getting really diving deep into it. I mean, one of the things that I want to do at some point, perhaps, is is do more of the translation work, right? Because like, something like eighty percent of his work is not even translated in English yet. So, you know, that might be, you know, that might be a project we can, you know, do work on at some point.
2: Um, you, you end uh, the book uh, uh, again in the present and that's of course a key sort of uh, register of the book that you see throughout that you're trying to connect a 19th century thinker with these uh, uh, really existential questions that have to do with the present uh, and you um, uh, not, you focus on or you, you use the example of uh, a contemporary scholar of Islam um, uh, Yasser Qadi in an episode right. to do with him. Tell us a bit about that very moving epilogue, what, what you do in that epilogue.
3: Well, I think I mean I know Yasser, I know Yasser personally. I mean I haven't you know spoken to him many many years now, but we were in graduate school together. So I and I know I know Yasser's politics are very controversial. right? I mean I'm sure you you followed his particular take on 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 things as well. He's, he's fairly conservative. He's a member of sort of the Salafia. Um, uh, you know, um, I think what I was trying to get at with with that blog was just to show how. Uh, the inability or the unwillingness to treat Muslims as critics, right, as people who can critically engage with their lives here or elsewhere, Um, what that looks like, right, in the contemporary age, right? Like somebody like Yasir Qadhi, who in many ways is, you know, he he might be, you know, theologically and philosophically far more conservative than I would like, or you would like, or anybody else might like but somebody who's really trying to be a modern, right? Like he's trying to make a home. He's trying to become at home in this world, right? Where he belongs is being sort of constantly undercut, right? By um, not just sort of, um, you know, sort of the, the powers that be, but in the very act of being able to speak his own existence into to speak his own existence coherently into the world, into the public sphere uh, is is becoming impossible for him. Right. Um, Now the particular piece that, that I mentioned, um, you know, the New York times piece on him was written, I think in 2010. So I don't know what's happened in the last nine years with Yasser, but Yasser was just a a kind of a, you know, like, he's just a stand in for like literally, you know, millions of muslims around the world right including myself right but i as i mentioned like i mean i personally was after 9 11 was like it was a very difficult time right like just to be able to speak anything you know to be able to sort of like verbalize your particular critical take on on what was happening around you um and so yeah so i was just using yasser as a sort of example you know of uh and like i said i mean i started with, with I it because these are not easy figures, right? I'm not doing Reza Islan or Sri Zakaria because that's just nonsense. You know, that, 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 the reason is they, they, like, to put that thing up like it's just useless, right? Because they're not really doing anything. They're not being critical in their Muslim subjectivities. They're just, you know, I mean, you know what I mean. So, right. so it's really these difficult figures, right? These figures that are complicated, that are not easy to stomach, right? They are the test of whether we can have critical Muslims sort of in the public right. sphere, in the global public ministry, right? They are the real test. You know, Reza is not a test. You know, Linda Sarsour, she's a test, right? That's hard. Omar Ilhan, she's a test, right? That though, so for me, like those are the, the kinds of figures, right? Um, I think I write in, in the other book, like that, if you look at the way, uh, in the American context, especially look at the way, like, um, uh, black political activism and black uh, sort of critical uh, engagement has shifted, right, over time. Right, so we went from like, say, in the 60s, you had movies like To Serve With Love, you know, and like just very sort of anodyne descriptions of black, oh, blacks are people too, right, to something like, like Get Out or Django Unchained, right, which is really sort of giving a space for black critical anger, right, and righteousness. Right, so I think, I feel like something like that has to be on offer. Right. Uh, for Muslims in this country and elsewhere. Right. Especially in the West, obviously, because without that, you just have this kind of, you know, this continuing cycle of like the, you know, what I call sort of basementization of discourse where right? everything goes to the basement. And then, you know, basements are not connected to each other. <laughs> the basements are like, you know, by definition, there is only one place.
2: Uh, so as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, uh and you've sort of alluded to this also, but could you share a bit with our listeners? What's the uh, actually? You're sort of done with your second book also, but could you say a bit about that? And maybe what's the the future hold in terms of what you're planning on working
3: on? Okay, so so the next project I'm going to work on is is this idea called uh, it's um uh, the, the tentative title is um, Love as a Political Idea, and I want to do this kind of a uh, like a use like a range of scholars in the last 150 years who ground the politics of love in some particular religious understanding, right? So I'm going to look at Iqbal. uh, I'm going to look at Martin Buber, uh, Hannah Arendt again. Um, I'm going to look at uh, maybe Fanon, right? Uh, So like just, again, doing something similar as to what I was doing here, which is sort of like, just explore this idea of love. uh, using sort of Jewish and Hindu, Muslim, different, you know, different sort of varieties of, 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 of folks and to ground the, the, the love as a, as a, as a political idea, not, you know, as an active political idea. So that's next project. The book that's finished now is basically was actually part of this, the same book that I then chopped into two. So um, the book that that's coming out in October that you've read and reviewed. Thank you. Um, basically looks at this commensurability thesis that I mentioned in, in Islamist critique, the either or, right? Like the either friend or foe, and just expands that discussion to a book length discussion, right? Like in, in how does that particular either or sort of operate in Western public discourses. Right. And so that, so that, so that's, that book is finished, but I'm, 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 I think I'm like sort of done with this particular phase of my scholarship, right? My, My Islam-specific scholarship, I think, is coming to a temporary close at least. You know, I think I'm going to be moving on to like sort of doing much more sort of comparative work, which is what I've been trained in.
2: Islam as a Critique, Sayyid Ahmad Khan and the Challenge of Modernity by Professor Khuram Hussain, uh, published by Bloomsbury Press in uh, 2020. And this was part of the Islam of the Global West uh, series. Uh, uh, thank you so much uh, Khurram for your time uh, to come on the New Books Network. It's really been a pleasure to have you on and uh, uh, thank you again for this uh, wonderful and uh, really provocative and important book that I'm no, sure No,
3: thank you. Thank you Sheryl. This was really be read good. And debated. It was great talking to you. Thank you so much.
2: So this was my conversation with Professor Khurram Hussein about his wonderful new book Islam as Critique. I hope you enjoyed this episode of your favorite podcast New Books in Islamic Studies which operates online through the New Books Network. Until next time, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Uh, Take care, stay well, and keep listening to your favourite podcast, New Books in Islamic
1: Studies.